Do we have free will? This, of course, is an age-old question, and one with immense moral relevance. Intuitively, it feels like we will our thoughts and actions, and have the power to choose what we do. Nonetheless, it's currently fashionable among some eminent thinkers to believe that free will is an illusion. In this episode, I want to explain why this belief is wrong, and that rejecting free will misses almost everything that's important about the role consciousness plays in cognition. I'll also present a theory for how free will works and what it means for our place in the world. I'll be using the term free will in the colloquial sense, meaning basically that when you feel like you're choosing a thought or action, you really are, whereas free will skeptics believe that that feeling is an illusion and you actually have no power over what your thoughts or actions are. While I think the latter is possible, there are a lot of good reasons to believe it's not the case. I think it's clear our free will is not absolute, meaning we're constrained in our options by the way our brains are formed, our memories, and our current state. For example, whether we're hungry or ill, sleep-deprived, drugged, etc. In many cases, these influences have more say over our actions than our willpower does. I also think our free will and consciousness are not supernatural. They're inextricably linked to the physical world and governed by the laws of physics, and eventually will be amenable to comprehensive scientific understanding. Okay, on to talking about the arguments against free will. The most common piece of evidence free will skeptics produce is a famous 1983 neuroscience study by Benjamin Labette and colleagues. You've probably heard about it. It reported that brain activity indicating that an action will be taken, called a readiness potential, occurs before the subject is aware of deciding to act. The conclusion is supposedly that your brain has already chosen to do something before you believe you've chosen to do it. Indeed, this would seem to indicate that free will is impossible if our brains have already chosen what to do prior to the conscious act of deciding. But let's look a little bit closer than that, which is all that's usually said. In this experiment, subjects were hooked up to an EEG, a cap of wires connected to their scalp recording electrical brain activity, and their arms were connected to an EMG that could sense muscle action. They were seated in front of a spinning light that completed a circle every two and a half seconds, told to wait for at least one full rotation of the light, then, at a time of their choosing, twitch their fingers, making sure to remember exactly where the light was when they chose to act. The subjects then reported what the clock position of the spinning light was when they decided to act. The researchers performed careful control experiments to ensure that no spurious timing mistakes could creep into the results. From this setup, the researchers reported that the brain signal associated with the intentional action, the readiness potential, occurred on average 350 milliseconds before the subjects believed they decided to act. This conclusion was immediately controversial and has remained so in the subsequent 37 years. In a follow-up paper in 1985, the study's author, Libet, carefully reviewed the paper's evidence and stated that it does not reject free will, writing, quote, the experimental findings led us to the conclusion that voluntary acts can be initiated by unconscious cerebral processes before conscious intention appears, but that conscious control over the actual motor performance of the acts remains possible. In my view, the main problem for this study is that I don't think we're at all accustomed to pinpointing when we've made a decision. Why should we be? In normal life, there's never any reason to know the instant we've made a decision, and many decisions are only preliminary. For example, sometimes I've decided to make a joke in a social setting, and I'm just waiting for the right moment to say it out loud, but then over time realize that the timing is all wrong and decide instead not to say it at all. Anytime we're making definite decisions, say realizing we're about to miss our exit on the interstate and deciding whether to cut across traffic or not, we're more concerned with the results of those decisions, not with identifying when the act of deciding itself occurs. 
Because of this, I think the experiment is basically asking someone to perform a reaction time test on their own decision-making. Humanbenchmark.com has collected 81 million tests of human reaction time, with it taking an average of 280 milliseconds for a person to click their mouse after seeing a red box turn green, when that person is trying to react as quickly as possible. In the Libet experiment, instead of watching a red box turn green, then clicking a mouse to indicate they've seen the change, subjects were watching their mental state while they were deciding to act, then realizing they've decided to act, and marking a timer's position once they did. It turns out, both take about the same amount of time, a few hundred milliseconds. I think it's also possible that the readiness potential reported in this study consists of some of the mental work involved in imagining and organizing the action to be taken, and that only after this idea is in place can we decide whether or not to act on it. Indeed, a paper published by Patrick Haggard and colleagues in August 2019 in the journal Neuroimage supports this view. They designed a clever study to get around the unreliability of decision-making recall that cast doubt on Lobet's classic study. In this experiment, subjects hooked up to an EEG watched a computer screen displaying a series of black letters. Each letter would appear on the screen for a little over 200 milliseconds, then would be replaced by another letter, and so on. The subjects were told to press the spacebar whenever they felt like it, a so-called self-paced movement, and they were asked from time to time to remember which letter was on the screen when they felt the urge to press the spacebar. This helped verify that the subjects were paying attention to the screen and gave some additional information when the EEG data was analyzed. Importantly, every once in a while, the letter on the screen would be shown in orange rather than black, and the subject was instructed to press the spacebar while the orange letter was displayed only if they felt they were already preparing to make a self-paced movement before that orange letter appeared. The researchers also used a more modern EEG analytical method introduced in 2006 to analyze their data, offering deeper insights than what was available back in 1983. The experimental design here is quite ingenious. If the subject disregarded the instruction and pressed the spacebar as a result of seeing the orange letter, and not because they had already decided to move before seeing that orange letter, the timing of their readiness potential would reveal that. In such a case, the onset of the readiness potential would have to be after the orange letter began to be displayed. Similarly, if they just continued pressing the spacebar at random, heedless of the special instruction for orange letters, the timing of the readiness potential would be randomly scattered both just before and during the orange letter's time on screen. On the other hand, if the subjects followed the instruction, then a readiness potential would more often appear before the orange letter appeared, showing not only that the subject was already planning to move, as the 1983 Libet study showed, but that they were aware they were already planning to move, which the Libet study supposedly shows is impossible. Indeed, this study found just that, that readiness potentials were significantly more likely to appear before the display of any orange letter acted on by the subject than would be expected by random chance. That is, the EEG reading agreed with the subject's perception that they were already planning to move when the orange letter appeared. The researchers state, quote, Our experiment provides direct evidence that the readiness potential is linked not only to motor preparation, but also specifically to awareness of intention, end quote. Another fascinating recent study by Christoph Kach and colleagues, and published in the open access journal eLife in October 2019, casts serious doubt on the conclusion that free will is rejected by neuroscience. They noted that prior readiness potential studies focused on arbitrary actions taken at random with no consequence or importance for the subjects. The researchers sought to better understand the neuroscience of more meaningful decisions by allowing the subjects to choose which of two nonprofit organizations would receive a $1,000 donation. The subjects were hooked up to an EEG, 
shown a series of choices between two nonprofits dedicated to different, often conflicting causes, for example, pro-abortion versus anti-abortion. And then they were told to press either a right or left button to award the cash as soon as they decided. This type of decision-making task was called deliberate by the researchers. The participants were also given a task more akin to the older arbitrary studies, where they were told to perform the same task, but with the knowledge that no matter what button they pressed, each nonprofit shown would receive $500. This task was called arbitrary by the researchers. This study found that arbitrary decisions were accompanied by a readiness potential about 500 milliseconds before movement started, just like in the Labette study. However, they found that no readiness potential could be observed in the deliberate cases. That is, when the decision mattered, no pre-awareness brain activity could be detected. In the study's conclusion, the authors state, quote, Our study suggests that readiness potentials do not precede deliberate decisions, or at the very least are strongly diminished before such decisions. In addition, it suggests that readiness potentials represent an artificial accumulation of random fluctuations rather than serving as a genuine marker of an unconscious decision to initiate voluntary movement. Hence, our results challenge readiness potential-based claims of Labette and follow-up literature against free will and arbitrary decisions, and much more so the generalization of these claims to deliberate decisions." End quote. In light of all of this, I think you would agree that the case against free will is not so solidly founded on neuroscience as most free will skeptics would have you believe. In fact, this more recent scientific evidence directly contradicts the old evidence that has so long been held up as support for the non-existence of free will. It remains the case that whether or not we have free will is an open question, and we can't claim to have scientific proof one way or the other until we comprehensively understand what consciousness is, how it arises, and how it functions namely the hard problem of consciousness and all associated quote-unquote easy problems. The question remains a philosophical one, so any definite claims one way or another should be taken with a grain of salt, mine included. Despite all this recent evidence, there remain some very vocal and influential free will skeptics, perhaps most notable among them being neuroscientist and philosopher Sam Harris. He holds that free will is an illusion and that we have no power whatsoever over what we do or think. I respect Sam Harris a great deal, and I'm really grateful for his insight and clear thinking on difficult topics. I think his conclusions regarding free will are wrong, however, or at least not definitely, obviously right, as he would have you believe. In the spirit of good debate, here's a stab at following Rappaport's rules for constructive critical commentary. Part one of those rules is to state your opponent's position as clearly as possible. So, Sam Harris's argument against free will is founded on determinism, the idea that the things that happen in the physical universe are governed by the laws of physics and play out automatically, with effects following causes in a way totally predetermined by those laws. Whether or not there's any element of randomness is unimportant. In cases allowing randomness, what's predetermined is the set of possible outcomes, of which the history of the world and your life are one. The key assumption in this viewpoint is that consciousness can't influence this unfolding in any way. That is, whether or not consciousness is mechanistically the cause of outcomes in the world, that causal action is wholly predetermined by the physics of the brains that give rise to the conscious states that cause those outcomes. Because of this, we have exactly zero power to choose our actions and instead play out our lives like scripted characters in a movie. He has a lot of further ideas about what this framework means for morality, criminal justice, and our sense of self but these are not the focus here. I'll also note that he freely uses Labette's 1983 paper and related studies as the scientific evidence against free will, though as we've shown here, that evidence is highly controversial. Next part of Rappaport's rules is to state where you agree with them on the matter. 
So I think it's entirely possible that this view of free will is correct, but it's by no means a closed case like Harris suggests. He makes a point that a person's goodness or badness is largely the product of their genes, their upbringing, their place in the world, and the time period they're born into, and that there's an extreme degree of luck involved in everyone's fortunes and moral predicament. I agree emphatically with this. The third rule is to mention what you've learned from them on the matter. I'll say that Harris's ideas about how notions of personal responsibility can still guide social judgments, even in a world where everyone agrees free will doesn't exist, were unexpected to me, and I think his ideas on that are clever. You can read more in his 2012 book, Free Will, but the gist is that in such a world, we could still judge whether a person is fit to walk free in society based on their actions, which indicate what type of things their brain is likely to make them do. If they have a brain wired for impulsive, violent actions, and they've been found guilty of a violent crime, such a society would be justified in locking them up. Of course, in such a world, where there's no free will, we don't have any freedom to choose who walks free in society, or in fact, any capacity to change what happens in the world at all, because our actions are totally predetermined, so the point is moot. I guess by saying that, I'm not fulfilling Rappaport's third rule very well, but I just extremely disagree with Harris's view of free will. Okay, with that out of the way, on to my criticisms. Harris's argument has two main aspects. The first is the supposed scientific evidence represented by the Lebet study that has been cast into serious doubt. Early in his 2012 book, Free Will, he glosses over the controversy, spending just a paragraph describing that study and related ones before writing a chapter of spurious conclusions and thought experiments based on them. The second is the assumption that we live in a purely deterministic universe, such that consciousness can have no influence on the physical world, and therefore the idea of free will doesn't make sense. For example, on episode 181 of his podcast, Making Sense, he says, We have every reason to believe that free will is an incoherent concept. It just doesn't make sense in a deterministic universe. And it doesn't make any sense if you add a dose of randomness to the universe either. However, we don't know that we live in a purely deterministic universe, like Harris suggests. Science has a model of a deterministic universe, sure, but science is incomplete. For instance, science doesn't have any conclusive account of what consciousness is, how and why it arises from brain activity, and what its connection to the physical world is. There are many theories, and I even have a theory of consciousness that is detailed in other episodes of this podcast, but none of these has any real scientific basis other than surface-level observations like, you need a healthy human brain to experience normal human consciousness, or the appearance of consciousness is correlated with certain types of information processing in the brain. These facts get us no closer to definitively answering whether or not consciousness can influence brain activity through willpower. Because of this, we can't say for certain that consciousness doesn't have an influence on the world, though Harris is comfortable doing so. Aside from the determinism argument, Harris insists that one can realize that they can't control their thoughts through introspection. In Free Will, he writes, quote, Seeming acts of volition merely arise spontaneously, whether caused, uncaused, or probabilistically inclined, it makes no difference, and cannot be traced to a point of origin in our conscious minds, unquote. A little later, he writes, quote, A moment or two of serious self-scrutiny, and you might observe that you no more decide the next thought you think than the next thought I write, unquote. This is a nice assertion, and Harris's history as a dedicated meditator would seem to lend credence to his implication that his powers of introspection are greater than those of everyone who happens to disagree with him. He says as much in episode 181 of his podcast. I've been slow to understand just how much intellectual work is being done for me by the fact that I've had certain experiences in meditation. 
and these experiences have made certain features of the mind obvious. So there are questions about things like free will, or the hard problem of consciousness, or the nature of morality, that people continually get hung up on, and I often can't see the basis for their confusion. And more and more I see that this basis is not conceptual, is that they can't actually notice certain things about their own experience. Maybe it's true that Harris's experience with meditation grants him access to an understanding of these fiercely debated philosophical concepts that transcends everyone else's. Whether that's true or not, his account of free will not appearing in awareness, and in fact being logically impossible, doesn't square with my experience. On the point of it being logically impossible, that's simply wrong if it's the case that consciousness can influence brain activity, which is an open question. On the point of it being experientially absent, I can say that I've meditated regularly for the last 15 years, and my experience of my mind is clearly different from his experience of his mind. When I introspect or meditate in what he calls serious self-scrutiny, I perceive that my mind is continually being presented with half-formed thoughts which I assume originate from subconscious mental processes. My conscious mind is then tempted to focus on whichever of these is most salient, thereby promoting that nascent idea to conscious attention where it can be elaborated on and connected to other regions of brain processing. Only through exerting willpower can I, as the conscious subject, resist the temptation to pick up one of these trains of thought and instead keep meditating, observing my mental state but not thinking discursive verbal thoughts. So Harris is not the only influential free will skeptic out there. In general, it seems to me that the scientists and engineers who are confident that free will doesn't exist are saying, quote, Okay, we're fine with the idea that this mysterious, unexplained thing, subjective consciousness, arises from brain activity. However, we're not okay with the idea that this mysterious, unexplained thing could in turn affect brain activity. End quote. It strikes me as a strange conclusion. On the one hand, we have the observation that consciousness, a singular phenomenon unlike anything else we know of, arises in an unexplained way from brain activity. We accept that because it's clearly the case, even though we don't understand how it works. On the other hand, we have this conclusion that consciousness definitely, indisputably can't influence brain activity because we don't understand how that could work. I don't get why it's so off-limits to allow for the possibility that this thing we don't understand can function in a way we don't understand. I chalk this up to an observation that scientists and engineers want to believe that everything in the universe works in the same way that the things we design work. This is a premature conclusion, in my view. We can only design things based on our knowledge of how they work, and we don't yet have comprehensive knowledge about how consciousness works. Once upon a time, there were scientists and engineers that were certain that flying vehicles are impossible. As long as our knowledge about consciousness is incomplete, there should be no definite conclusions about how it works. To explain my view better, let's step back and note that many philosophers, Harris included, believe that consciousness is a non-functional byproduct of brain activity, a so-called epiphenomenon. This presents them with a ton of problems, such as why consciousness exists at all if it's not doing anything, which they have to contort mightily to contend with. My view is different. Instead of being an accidental byproduct, consciousness is actually crucial to the waking information processing undergone by the brain and plays the role of a collaborator and leader of the brain's spatially disparate subconscious informational processes. 
Subconscious activity lays the groundwork by building a model of the world from our senses, memories, and instincts. And consciousness is the mental space in which all of this disparate information becomes represented in one continuous experience. Within that experience, it's possible to combine information from disparate brain regions more fluidly and efficiently than would be possible without consciousness. This is the critical aspect of my view, that the conscious subject, the one who feels all of the sensations and thought drafts generated by subconscious processing, has the ability to choose which of these sensations and thought drafts to focus on. In the end, this is the key point of this whole discussion. I hold that consciousness not only allows brain activity to be represented in awareness with qualities like meaning, sensation, and understanding, it also confers the ability to select from a range of mental inputs to form new ideas and will different actions. This is the reason consciousness is evolutionarily beneficial. In this context, it's an advanced informational processing tool that allows an organism to respond more fluidly, creatively, and efficiently to the demands of the outside world than would be otherwise possible and it depends at crucial moments on freely willed choices. For example, let's say I'm walking around and see someone I've met once before walking my way, waving to me. My occipital lobe's processing of their image presents an experience of seeing them in my consciousness. This conscious perception sparks activity in my hippocampus related to the fact that I've met this person before, and that idea is represented in consciousness as, hey, I know that person. This conscious perception sparks further brain activity related to what I know about social norms, which prompts yet another conscious perception. I should say hi, but what is that person's name again? This new conscious perception and desire to remember their name enacts a search process through the neurons encoding my memories. The point here is that by allowing information processes that exist in disparate locations in the brain to be represented in a single continuous mental space, Consciousness makes information processing much more flexible and rapid than it could possibly be otherwise if all that information had to be routed through neurons solely and yet still somehow represent meaning. Consciousness is like a powerful switchboard through which disparate regions of brain activity can be connected together seamlessly and at will. In this view, subconscious brain activity in disparate parts of the brain gives rise to conscious experience, and I believe this is where Harris and I agree. The next part is where we differ. Consciousness, by perceiving the information comprising the processes undergone in the separate subconscious parts of the brain and combining different sets of information, changes that information. Subconscious processes act as inputs to consciousness. Then conscious focus chooses to link that disparate information in new ways, and that conscious informational processing serves as a new input for those disparate subconscious processes. In doing research for this podcast, I was surprised and delighted to find that the same scientist whose work sparked the modern debate about free will, Benjamin Labette, spent the latter part of his career developing a theory quite similar to the one I'm describing here. I'm going to take a minute or two to read an excerpt from his excellent 2004 book, Mind Time. Quote, I have proposed that we may view conscious subjective experience as if it were a field produced by appropriate though multifarious neuronal activities of the brain. Such a field would provide communication within the cerebral cortex without the neural connections and pathways in the cortex. A conscious mental field, or CMF, would provide the mediator between the physical activities of nerve cells and the emergence of subjective experience. It thus offers an answer to the profound question of the non-physical mental arising from the physical. A chief quality or attribute of CMF, that is conscious mental field, would be that of a unified or unitary subjective experience, that is, the CMF would be the entity in which unified subjective experience is present. A second attribute would be a causal ability to affect or alter neuronal functions. 
The putative CMF would not be in any category of known physical fields, such as electromagnetic, gravitational, and so on. The conscious mental field would be in a phenomenologically independent category. It's not describable in terms of any externally observable physical events or of any known physical theory as presently constituted. In the same sense as for all subjective events, the CMF would be detectable only in terms of subjective experience, accessible only to the individual who has the experience. There are no doubt rules for, at least much of, the relationship between the CMF and the physically or externally observable neural processes. But the rules are not describable a priori, in other words, before they are discovered by studying both phenomena simultaneously. End quote. Labette goes on to describe some experimental designs that he believed would help test the existence of the CMF. I think this theory is just remarkable, and I'm surprised it hasn't gained more traction than it did. For example, just now in January 2020 is the first I'm reading about it. I sincerely hope Labette's legacy extends to include this insightful theoretical work, and not just his adept experimental work, and its spurious role in free will denial. I agree with Labette that this theory offers a very nice solution to one of the most puzzling riddles of neuroscience, the binding problem, which asks, how do all of the brain's disparate processes, like sight, hearing, calculating, imagining, feeling, etc., appear at once in one single mind? Though each of our thoughts is comprised of many millions of energetic neuronal exchanges coordinated by subconscious processes, we experience them each as whole ideas, an experiential representation of the informational content that they amount to, and therein lies the power of the mind. As the global effect of all simpler processes in the informational hierarchy of brain, mind contains at once a comprehensive informational picture of all its pertinent constituent processes. In this view, the mind is the highest informational level of the brain-mind hierarchy, the single effect of all the simpler components of brain activity combined in one subjective experience. Every brain process related to modeling the external world and figuring out how to survive in it is represented in the same awareness. It's not as if each separate brain region were connected to a central hub with the hearing part of the brain connected to the seeing part of the brain through this consciousness center. There is no quote-unquote seat of consciousness in the brain where all information modeled therein must pass through to reach conscious awareness. All informational exchange therein is automatically present in awareness. The idealist metaphysics laid out in earlier episodes of this podcast clarifies how this could work. Also known as panpsychism, this view holds that the fundamental basis for reality is conscious awareness, and it hinges on the belief that all of the information making up the physical universe, including the physical parameters of all your atoms, such as charge, relative velocity, relative position, and on and on, can only exist through being known to exist. The thing that gives physical reality its substance is an all-encompassing, unimaginable overmind in which all of the information describing physical reality is known, and which could be termed cosmic awareness. I present the argument for this stance much more fully in the second episode of this podcast. But here, the point is that the origin of our consciousnesses and the mechanism of the interaction between mental mind and physical brain can be explained in terms of the equality of the physical and mental as two shades of this one all-pervading substance, cosmic awareness. Our personal awarenesses directly reflect the informational reality of the world around us, and the representation of that information, like all information, exists in cosmic awareness. As a result, what we experience as our own personal consciousness is actually just a subset of the universal consciousness. Importantly, there's no break between the physical phenomena of our brain's informational processing and our conscious perception of that information. The two are different features of one phenomenon. 
I'll note that in this metaphysical framework, it's also the case that even quote-unquote subconscious processes are conscious in themselves, perhaps at a dim level we can't imagine from the perspective of our engaged, outward-looking, high-powered consciousness. Similarly, trees, fungi, or even microorganisms are likely dimly conscious in a way we aren't really equipped to imagine. Okay, so because both brain and mind are aspects of this single informational continuum, the mind can't evaluate the overall content of the brain's processes without influencing those processes. Mind doesn't stand apart from brain and perceive its informational content, but perceives that content through its interaction with it. In the very act of perceiving different regions of brain activity, mind influences that activity. Mind and brain are equal participants in the informational processing undergone therein. The mind and brain interchange information like two mirrors face-to-face, where each mirror can warp and bend to modify the information it sends out. The storm of informational activity in the brain is reflected in the consciousness of the mind. When the mind recognizes the desirability of a change amidst the emerging patterns of information, it can bring those changes into being by focusing on them, by bringing them into one logical picture. So influencing the informational content of the brain is a cooperative function that requires input from the brain-encompassing mind to operate on a high enough level for an organism's survival. If a region in the right hemisphere of your brain is processing a melody that appeared from the chance melding of memories from several songs heard previously, and a region from the left hemisphere of your brain contains the neural mechanisms for whistling, mind at once has access to both of these disparate brain regions by containing them both in the same space of awareness. To combine the two, mind simply recognizes the connection between the two concepts and the desire to utilize their compatibility, and this new logical input from the informational summation of the mind is echoed in the brain. This impels the flow of action potentials across the brain, which results in the content of the melody being transmitted to the whistling apparatus and then produced in sound. It is the function of mind to perceive the possibility for a logical connection between disparate regions of neural activity. By connecting the two, mind forges a new logical concept, and this information serves as new input for the brain's lower-level distributed neural processing. In effect, like Douglas Hofstadter proposed in Gödel Escher Bach, mind closes a recursive loop in the brain-mind hierarchy, wherein the functions of neural informational processing serve as input for the mind's highest-level processing, and the results of mind's highest-level processing that is, thinking, surveying possibilities buried throughout the brain's memories and elaborating simple concepts by connecting these possibilities, serve as inputs for the multitudinous array of lower-level processing centers throughout the brain, and back and forth, on and on. An important point is that consciousness, and more specifically willpower, is actually a force in the universe that takes energy to enact. That is, consciousness is not a supernatural quality that stands apart from the physical world yet somehow influences physical matter. Consciousness is instead intimately connected to the physical world. There must then be a physics of consciousness, whereby conscious influences obey the laws of physics, like the law of conservation of energy. Using one's willpower feels hard because it takes physical energy to enact. When you make a choice to do something you don't really want to do because you know it's the right thing to do, whether that's to continue focusing at work even though you really want to check Instagram, or choosing to order the salad instead of the hamburger because you're trying to lower your cholesterol, you're expending more mental effort than you would have to otherwise. Same thing for thinking hard about a problem or agonizing over a decision. This mental effort corresponds to an increased energy expenditure in your brain, burning more calories, and that's where the felt struggle comes from. By exerting willpower, you're using energy, just like when you lift a heavy weight or climb a flight of stairs. As a result, 
in a lot of cases, we use our free will to choose an action prescribed by our brains and presented to consciousness as the easiest choice, so to speak. For my part, when I wake up in the morning and choose between getting out of bed and hitting snooze on my alarm, I almost always take the easier choice presented to me by my brain. My brain says, you can get up now, but that wouldn't feel as good as hitting snooze and feeling that narcotic comfort of going back to sleep for a few minutes. Only when I'm aware that I don't have time to snooze do I take the harder choice. Habits operate in a similar way. The brain circuits involved in acting out a habit are well-formed and information flows through them with less energy, which feels to us as easier to choose and act out. Learning new skills or doing novel activities takes more willpower because we're exerting extra energy to form new neural circuits. Even harder to resist are addictions. Not only does it feel like the easy option, the brain also motivates us to take the addicted action. So in fact, it feels hard to do anything else than comply. So why are some subconscious processes available to consciousness, but some aren't? For example, I'm certainly not aware of the processing that decides when to release hormones or how fast my heart should beat. I answer that the consciousness we experience is the sum of all physical logic interactions in the brain pertaining to understanding and responding to the demands of the outer world. The less a brain process relates to building a model of the outer world to react to and survive through, the less that brain process is represented in consciousness. In humans, this outward-facing faculty has evolved to include abstract thought processes, such as counterfactual thinking, planning, and the rest. The informational processing undergone by the brain that doesn't appear in consciousness can be considered the subconscious, though there's no strict dividing line between the two. The subconscious processes giving rise to our visual field are more present in consciousness, the processes causing the diaphragm to contract rhythmically to breathe are less present in consciousness, and the processes causing the release of hormones at different times are not present in consciousness. I'd guess that there is probably some as-yet-undiscovered, physically observable quality of brain processes which are devoted to creating a model of the world, and thus are part of the conscious perceptual field, that isn't shared by subconscious processes related to bodily upkeep. The action of subconscious brain processing often informs and motivates conscious thought and action, and for this reason can't be considered strictly non-conscious. For example, while the conscious mind is operating on a specific experiential issue, perhaps correctly filling out a document, the brain is at work processing volumes of information pertaining to generating a model of the world based on sense data, evaluating its danger versus safety value, controlling bodily upkeep, and re-evaluating memories in reference to the present moment, to perhaps be of some value to the conscious mind's task of survival in the external world. The conscious mind draws on all of this activity, which presents an awareness as a sensation of what that subconscious processing means. This allows us to use a pen to write words, because subconscious processes remind us what it feels like to write words, and in that way inform us that doing so is an option available to us. On the other hand, my brain doesn't have any idea of what it would take to levitate, so my conscious mind doesn't consider that as a possible action it can take. Moods and emotions are also generally the product of our subconscious evaluating and processing the implications of emotionally charged memories, which influences the content of our consciousness. Okay, there's more that I could say, but I'll leave it there for now. I know this was a huge information dump, and I spoke as if I'm certain of what I said. Nonetheless, I don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that any of this is true, any more than Harris, for example, knows that consciousness is a non-functional byproduct of brain activity. At this stage, without conclusive scientific evidence one way or the other, basically making educated guesses regarding the nature of consciousness is the best we can do. Of course, I think my theory makes much more sense than Harris's and answers a lot of questions that epiphenomenalism can't, but anyone is free to disagree. 
If you do disagree, I hope to hear from you so that I can explain my view better and maybe learn new insights from hearing your disagreement. My email address is ytidealist at gmail.com, and I'm rarely on Twitter at IdealistYT. Thanks for listening.